Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans? Today is our a la carte episode. Uh, part of what we're trying to do uh, as part of our New Year's and welcome to the New Year of Movies is talk about some stuff that we liked about last year. Um, which we partially covered in our last episode of New Year's Resolutions, but this episode is a bit more focused on a few movies that uh, we just chose at, like, I don't know, just out of points of interest from last year. Yeah, things that we wanted to highlight, things that might be interesting, they might be, you know, innovative, they might be compelling failures in some ways, like just things that need to be pointed out. A couple of mine are a little bit more about maybe... uh, the difficulty in marketing them and what they actually turned out being and, and things that uh, uh, you may overlook otherwise um, in some cases. And in some, they're definitely movies you know about and we just want to celebrate them. Yeah. And we don't get to talk about every movie we want to talk about on this show, but um, as far as crossing off some things we wanted to discuss in 2022, this is just a fun way for us to do it. Um, I mm-hmm. am really intrigued by hearing some of what you some of your thoughts on what you saw this year. Uh, you seem to have seen a lot more from 2022 than me. Are you still on that watching a lot of 2022 stuff? Uh, sort of. Um, uh, I There are some that I'm still trying to track down uh, and some that it's still like, you know, they're, they're really doing their awards push now. So they're still in like limited theatrical release. Like the one that's really sort of sticking in my craw that I haven't been able to track down yet is After Sun. It's that Paul Mescal, um, hang on, who directed this movie? Um, Charlotte Wells, uh, sort of father-daughter impressionistic movie that I've heard very good things about. I'm a big fan of Paul Mescal from some of his work on television. Mm. Um, And then another one that we'll mention uh, has been brought up by a couple of our listeners uh, that I haven't watched yet, but I was actually planning on watching this afternoon. Yeah, we we normally, I think if you remember from our a la carte last year, sort of start by giving some disclosures. And and last year, yeah, I think I had way more movies that I hadn't been able to see. I think um, between like the streaming landscape and just some more effort on my part to hit up theaters, I've been able to see more of it. So it's really After Sun and All Quiet on the Western Front that I think are, are... sort of key gaps there's also that donkey movie uh eo or io but i'm not sure it's going to be an awards contender you hear anything about that donkey movie tay no i thought that was the abbreviation for everything (laughs) everywhere all at once eo which is which is just the letters eo is like a a silent movie told from the perspective of a donkey that goes on a journey it's like 80 minutes long maybe even shorter it sounds wonderful and every now and then it'll it'll ping on my radar again in another podcast or something i read online i i do really like intelligent unique animation and i like donkeys oh no this is this is live action is mine oh it's live action yeah yeah. and it's a real donkey they just shoot a donkey going on a going on a trip well my second point still stands i really like donkeys so i think that'll be right up my alley especially if it's 80 minutes well you know what's going to be right up your alley is the movie you still haven't seen yet because it's got a donkey in it and its name is jenny which one's that? <laughs> the Banshees of Inisherin. <laughs> oh yeah, so that that's probably honestly my biggest uh, uh, disclosure from the year. Uh, probably the most anticipated movie I have not seen yet. I'm a huge Martin McDonough fan. Going back to his sh- uh, short films, I I've always really liked Martin McDonough, 
and uh, I'm a huge Colin Farrell fan. Um, I think Brendan Gleeson is a tremendously underrated actor, and I love that those two are back working with Martin McDonough after how much fun In Bruges was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like been at the top of my list for a lot of the year and i know it's kind of available now but i it just it's, it's has, on it's, it's on disney plus if you got you got a subscription you got it for free man which well you know what i did pay for disney plus for the month just to have access to a couple things and i might just have to jump on that before i lose my subscription absolutely no that's a good one that's a good way to break into i think to our listener responses just yesterday i'm sorry to other listeners who maybe missed this, I didn't give you a ton of notice. Still getting my bearings on how to be a good podcast host. Um, but uh, we reached out on Instagram and said, what are your sort of pick three? Like if they're ones that are sticking with you from the year, ones that were interesting, or just what are your top three? Whatever that means to you. And we got a number of responses, which we really appreciate. Um, one of, our, one of our, 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 our steadfast listeners, One Watch Guy, uh, with underscores beneath between the words, uh, he he mentioned banshees, um, and I'd agree it's definitely one that stood out. I'm I'm curious as to whether or not uh, Colin Farrell is going to get his Oscar for it this year. I think it's definitely definitely a possibility, and I think it'd definitely be worthwhile. There, he's he's got some tough uh, competition in uh, Brendan Fraser, I'd say, a tough narrative to overcome, right? Uh, which, but Farrell, which Colin Farrell's personal narrative. No, like Brendan Fraser's narrative of sort of returning to the industry and, and, you know, a big sort of, you know, an actor's actor's role, something the Academy really likes where he didn't transform his body, but he underwent a lot of prosthetics, that kind of thing. And I mean, and everyone likes the comeback story, right? He's an undeniably lovable, lovable guy with the exception of one person that you and I both know who can't stand him. And I think he might be the only person in the world who doesn't like Brendan Fraser. But uh, I won't. I won't fully expose our friend uh, on here. Uh, one watch guy also uh, mentioned the menu, which um, I caught in theaters a bit on a lark, um, and I found it very enjoyable. I think it's also available uh, to Canadians on Disney Plus, and that was a bit of a, a bit of a sneaky one. Like it was, it was a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more impressive than I thought it was going to be. Um, Connecting to Brendan Fraser in The Whale, you got Hong Chow in both of them. Um, really just like making the most of not a ton of screen time. Um, Nicholas Holt, like uh, it, it, there, there's a lot of, lot, lot of great presence on that screen. Uh, and the menu, I think, is a really good sort of streaming option. Are you, you, you haven't checked that out yet, have you, Tay? I have not, but uh, it like just from what I was seeing and hearing about it, it kind of felt like it had a similar tone to pig which you mentioned on this episode last year yeah it's more it's more of like a a satire so it's made by uh if i remember right mark mylod who directed a number of succession episodes so it's really more about skewering the rich and some class systems than it is about engaging with the cook's relationship to their art and how it's changed, but there's definitely overlap. There's a lot of commentary on what happens to an artist over their lifetime, whether they're a chef or whether they're a filmmaker or, or a novelist and becoming jaded and things like that and, and how your audience can have an effect on that. Um, it, it It's not as somber as Pig. It's more black comedy um it it honestly like when i first saw it it felt more like this is like a longer episode of like black mirror or something like that um okay but i mean it's it's anchored by just the the incomparable ray fines um 
who just I, I don't know if he's ever not delivered um he's he's had some some weaker wit written roles and he's known unfortunately i'd say most to our generation as voldemort which is one of the less interesting things he's ever done but a phenomenal actor yeah honestly i've always like well since grand budapest came out i've always kind of aligned myself like that is like what he can do with a role like when it's his and yeah. he, I, I just i've always given so much credit to him for taking a Wes Anderson lead role and making it something that's a lot less Wes Anderson than you see in most of his protagonists. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I always thought Fines has been such a, such a gem. Yeah. So one watch guy also uh, brought us all quiet on the Western front, which I mentioned I hadn't seen yet. Um, Tay, you, you catch that one yet? No, I um like, I've seen the original film though. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which, and this is, which was pretty my good. My understanding is this is from the other side. It's not a remake. It's the it's the German side of the war. Wasn't the initial one the German side of the war? Did I get that backwards? I don't know. I got to watch this new one. <laughs> Double check it. Um, but, I mean, I know every now and then it does come up that it, this one could have some potential for awards and a little bit more uh, prestige and status. So I definitely want to get around to that. Another person I, who brought us all quiet on the Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say I was surprised that Netflix made this movie. Yeah, I wonder, it almost feels like a bit of a bygone era for Netflix. Like, it feels like something they were doing more like when they made Roma and things yeah. like that. So I yeah. wonder if, like, I don't know if this was a long production or something we were locked into, because they're definitely moving more into the, you know, block absolute blockbusters, um, you know, and producing ar arguably the worst movie I saw this year in The Gray Man. <laughs> um, so it's nice that they put out the All Quiet on the Western Front in the same year because uh, it sounds good, and I'm looking forward to checking it out. It seems like an interesting marketing decision on their on their front because they it's not something you typically would see. But there was also almost zero competition for war films uh, mm -hmm. this in like the November season, and I yeah. feel like they might have just seen like the market gap there and had a movie ready for this time possible um i also wonder i'm curious if it's a if it counts as a german production if it's something they could throw into foreign um because that is something they benefited from in the past and they also they produced the inuritu movie this year right bardo yes yeah yeah haven't, haven't Which, seen that uh, yet cannibalizing themselves a bit uh i think i think i've made my thoughts clear on on inuritu and uh and Bardo seems like particularly the type of Inuritu I'm not interested in. Although I still have your DVD of Amoris Peros here and I will watch it soon. And I'm looking forward to watching that on your recommendation. But anyway, uh, so All Quiet on the Western Front also, bro also brought to us by our friend Curdy Boy, um, who also brought us uh, Elvis. Um, now, Elvis Imagine I just that. watched recently. Yeah. Uh, Kurt is a, uh, he's a big Elvis fan. Um and I saw him recently at uh, at Kurt's show, uh, his band show, The Ferns. Check him out. We'll link him. They've got a song called Fat Elvis. It's a, it's a good bop. Uh, and I talked to that Kurt is a good about tune. Elvis. Yeah. I was talking to Kurt about Elvis. And uh, so that's the Baz Luhrmann biopic, uh, Austin, Austin Butler. Butler. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a wonderful performance. Uh, I think Austin Butler's got an exciting future. Uh, he's playing Fade Rotha in uh, Dune 2 which I think uh, is very, very exciting choice. And he, uh, could he be just nice got all, he's got all those like things that indicate like future star, yeah. like, fu like next Leonardo DiCaprio kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
so charismatic and like it's fun like you know i rewatched once upon a time in hollywood and 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 recognized him as tex now he's he's tex mason he's he's sticking out more um but no it's a wonderful performance there's there's some cgi landscape work in uh in baz Luhrmann's elvis which i don't really care for that's baz Luhrmann, though yeah it, it is what he does and like there are some exciting transitions there's some big cinema things that happen in it that made me really wish I had bothered to see it in a movie theater and not on my TV on Disney Plus at home. Um, and I, my my issue in the end was that I didn't really feel like I learned much about Elvis. And right. I also felt like it was lacking a lot of nuance on Elvis by instead telling you about something that admittedly I knew nothing about, which was Colonel Tom Parker, his sort of manager and the guy that brought him to fame. Um but by making Tom Parker an outright villain and Elvis sort of like rising above it all, um, I think you lost some of the nuance that could have been there when you're discussing Elvis's story. All that said, it's Elvis. I'm sure you could make a hundred movies about him that all look at different things in different ways. Um, it's kind of like a never ending uh, uh, mine uh, to excavate. Um, but, uh, but there are certainly things I liked about it. It had wonderful presentation and uh, Butler was definitely the highlight for me. Of all the people I can think of to get that recommendation from, Curdy Boy would be right at the top of the list. If he's saying yeah. El- the Elvis movie's good, I'm gonna check it out. If he had yeah, told so, me if he yeah. had said it was bad, I honestly would probably just not even bother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he he dug it. Um, and uh, another person who brought us Elvis was uh, YVR Climber, another one of uh, another one of the listeners that we often see in the roundups. Uh, and he brought. Uh, both we'll maybe pair them together here northman and prey sort of like uh uh visceral period movies northman's the one there's always a couple every year where i i i have a great time i really enjoy it sought in theaters uh with you and some of our other friends big sort of like metal epic mythic quest and then i forgot it came out in 2022 when i started building my list um not, yeah. nothing against it but like it did just feel like this is an adventure you go on. It has Eggers, you know, steadfast commitment to uh, tactility and realism in production design, um, but not something that really stuck in my craw like The Lighthouse. It was a lot less interesting from a character perspective and from a, even just a filmmaking perspective than I thought his mm-hmm. first two films were, just because this felt more conventional this felt much more like good versus evil or some distorted myth of that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the myth factor that keeps me really fascinated with Edgar's work. Just his fascination with not telling a realistic story, but a story of the myth that was told of mm-hmm. a past time. So instead of creating realistic scenarios, it's the stories that you actually hear in the mythology of, mm-hmm. in, in this case, Viking culture. Um, that may or may not have taken place. It was just part of their lore. And I think what he's doing with these kinds of stories is really awesome. And I hope he continues to use this kind of framework. But um, I just felt something was lost in the Northmen in terms of like me connecting with it. I thought some of the action was fantastic and some of it was not as good. Um, But in terms of visuals, I I still don't think many people do it better than Eggers, um, especially, like you said, his attention to detail with uh, props and uh, sets um very mm-hmm. very detailed and exceptional at those at those factors but i just felt like something personally was lacking in the northman I, it was going to be on my list today to talk about but 
Um, yeah. I guess we get it in right here at the beginning. Yeah, no, and it's it's the kind of thing that, like, I'm glad it exists. You know, it cost about yeah. $70 million to make, and it didn't really make that back. Uh, similar to another one I was going to talk about, but I opted not to, 3,000 Years of Longing. That's George Miller's sort of passion project. Cost $60 million to make, made almost nothing. I'm glad that these intensely original, highly committed um, passion projects exist, especially at that budget level. That's not even... Yeah, that's, that's pretty rare. That's arguably the mid-budget level, but it's even a little bit higher than I'd say. What We, we always talk about that disappearing middle middle production market. Yeah, um, and honestly, I don't think these two movies helped our, our case with that this year. No, not not so much. But I do, like, Eggers is, as far as I, last I saw, he's still in production for what is, what is it sounds like his greatest passion project, which is Nosferatu. Um, which could honestly so, go either way and for a yeah. lot of people. <laughs> Mm-hmm. it's a beloved but, uh, story and original film so yeah. that's a tough one to try and take on but if anyone's going to mm-hmm. do it i've always kind of had that in my head about eggers like if anyone is going to touch nosferatu he would be the yeah. only filmmaker working today that i could see or that i'm familiar with that would have a shot at doing it accurately and properly absolutely yeah and so and uh yvr climber also brought us prey that was another one i know you were thinking about bringing up and that would yeah, be an really interesting like one prey. because I'm a little bit more ambivalent than most people I knew were on Prey. Um, one one reason for me, like, so it was shot in very wide, I want to say, Cinema Vision. Um, it's, a, it's a very wide format. Uh, I may have that word wrong. I'll put it in the show notes uh, once I do some research. It's an extremely wide format that I don't think plays well on TV screens at home. Um, probably would have been a much better theatrical release and it's frustrating to know that they had like a solid sort of action thriller like this and just dumped it on streaming when like it definitely would have made its budget back it maybe wouldn't have been the biggest hit but like I don't know I don't know what prompted the idea it's the same with like you know something like you know this year they did Halloween ends day and date on streaming the same time it came out and I mean that movie uh, it sucks. It's not good, but it also made no money because they put it out on streaming the same day it came out on in theaters. Yeah, I um, honestly don't see that as a a working uh, formula for studios moving forward. I think what they're going to realize is if they want to do this simul- this sort of semi simultaneous release, they will release in theaters for two weeks and then release on streaming after two weeks. It gives you your tr- yeah. your shot at making that theater money, and people can still go after two weeks, even if you commit to a, a month long theater run, which I honestly think is yeah, much lower like, than like, yeah, the average four to six used weeks, to be. Right? Yeah, but then you you just release it on streaming after two three weeks, and I think mm-hmm. you you get the best of both worlds that way. You get so many people watching your your movie on streaming, but then the people who do want to see a movie like Prey, which hundred percent I would have been there in the theater to see that. That's a that was an exciting mm-hmm. anticipated release for me. And I watched it the day it came out on Hulu and I got some free preview to Hulu to do that. And I canceled it right away. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, I have no, any money. no desire it's, to keep that. Yeah. And I mean, you look on the, on the inverse um, this year also from Halloween was uh, smile, which as far as I know was produced with a, just a streaming drop in mind. And then on a lark, they, they, they brought it to a festival. Maybe tell your ride. And they just like they're like, oh, that was a pretty good reception. Maybe we should toss it into theaters, see what happens. 
and it did it made its money back in them some and has now spawned like a planned uh cinematic universe right so like what what more evidence do you need guys just like give it some time in theaters especially because like it's clear now like theater runs are are fluid they can choose week by week okay you know what we're done in theaters it it really tanked this last weekend it dropped by 80 percent we can call it here and we'll drop it on streaming in a month there does seem to be a lot more flexibility with that now yeah and and you put it on paid vod in the meantime but you know they're just odd choices being made um yeah prey was one of those this year and and i had a good time it just yeah it didn't really hit for me i think at the same degree as everyone else yeah Um, i you know what i i actually liked it for its simplicity it's mm. it didn't try and be anything more than a simple action film that had like it's your generic peaks but at the same time i thought you know the concept is really riveting to me i I really like this idea of the predators going back into other time periods and Mm. To me, that's that's all the hook I need. And then just give me some decent visuals, give me some decent performances and action sequences, and I'm I'm there. You got like I would be yeah. paying for that movie. And and it's the kind of thing where like I hope I hope it's considered a success in general on streaming because I like Dan Trachtenberg, really like Ten Cloverfield Lane, and I hope he gets to make more movies because it was a, it was a big break between the two. Um. Yeah. Uh, last real. last one to bring up, Curdy Boy also brought us Barbarian, which I think we both agree like just an un- unmitigated success, like just a phenomenal uh, debut, uh, uh, directorial debut from uh, Kreger. Zach yeah, Kreger. Zach Kreger. Yeah, from uh, Whitest Kids You Know. So kind of that Jordan Peele thing. Someone who understands comedy, understanding horror. You know, a matter of timing, a matter of balance. This one though, also they're so funny similar. They're way more itself. similar genres than people give them credit for. Yeah. Uh, and Barbarian's the kind of thing where you know I'm sure you've already heard it before if you haven't seen it yet. But like the less you know, the better. So it's on Disney Plus for Canadians. Um, I'm sure it's it's somewhere somewhere easy for for everyone else as well. Just go go check it out. I think it's a an accessible horror. It's not torture porn. It's not overly gory. I think you'll have a good time. I do too. I can I definitely vouch for this movie as well. I had so much fun going into the theater pretty blind. Um, didn't know anything except for that cool poster, the cool red poster with the door. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it once again, kind of, it was kind of a theme that I found in horror this year, just going back to the basics of let's create a real human scenario and then introduce a, a horror to this scenario. And, uh, I felt like horror movies did it so much better than other than years past. Um, another one I wanted to just shout out real quick was Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. A uh, mm-hmm. very Gen Z oriented film with that kind of bend to it. But at the same time, it was one. very simplified and just took out all the unnecessary stuff. Like it's just everything in that movie needs to be in that movie. And that that's just not something that's been happening in horror for the past like decade mm-hmm. where it's tense, like, trying to throw a bunch of stuff in there. This year, much cleaner um, and much more precise in what they're trying to do with like creating scares and creating experiences in horror movies. Um, so I think this is a, a tremendous success for a horror movie or for horror movies this year. Absolutely. Um, and then we had, we had a couple uh, by by one of our other listeners, but we're actually talking about those movies in our pick threes. So we'll get to those in a moment. And then lastly, I'm not going to shout out who did it because I don't know if it's a joke or maybe. They got the year wrong, but we did have someone um, 
submit and I, I got all the letters in there that they use so I'm going to try and read it verbatim they just said Dune which was a 2021 movie so I mean the movie's got staying power I definitely watched it this year too uh, if it's still if it's a big 2022 movie for you uh, even though it came out the year prior that that's okay with me I'm looking forward to Dune 2 I enjoy Dune 1 <laughs> Dune 2 is still one of my most anticipated now. So, uh, yeah, yeah, of course, we're both on that train. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we are going to close out this episode by both announcing what the February movies are going to be and we're going to talk about our most anticipated movies of next year. So stick around for that. But with that, we're going to jump into our pick threes, and I'm going to kick it off by talking about The Fablemans. And I, before before you turn off the podcast or fast forward... I just want to say that, like, my angle here is that The Fablemans is not what you probably think it is. And I I was surprised by it. I think that's why it's worth talking about. And I also think, like, it's had a weird release schedule where it wasn't in theaters. It felt like for super long. And then it went to paid VOD, but it's not available for free streaming. Not really sure what the strategy is for that in terms of award season. Um, they might just be trying to coast on Spielberg's name. But the Fablemans, if you don't know, it's Steven Spielberg's movie from this past year, uh, and it's a it's a self-reflective story about how he got into movies, and also sort of like the the fraught narrative of his parents' uh, divorce. Uh, that's not a spoiler. It shouldn't be a spoiler because Steven Spielberg's parents' divorce is probably the most influential divorce in the Western world. Because divorce became a staple of many of his movies, kids dealing with growing up in broken homes and things like that. So if you didn't know his parents were divorced, you've definitely seen a movie of his where the parents are divorced in it. Or that there are issues with with the mom and dad uh, and whether or not they'll stay together. I think think it's easy to assume a movie like this, especially because I don't think the trailer is particularly great. I actually think the poster is one of the worst posters of the year. Um... It, it, it can it can be easy to assume that it's going to be this saccharine rose colored rose tinted glasses look at look at how I fell in love with movies look at how great they are let's recount some of the greatest hits of my career you know very simple stuff I think I think a very good analog to what this movie seems like is Belfast uh, Kenneth Branagh's black and white movie about growing up in Belfast from 2021 which is far more that it's very feel good it's very inoffensive there's literally a sequence where young Kenneth Branagh goes to the movies and is just looking starry-eyed at the screen and you can see the lights flashing over his eyes and stuff like that the Fablemans to not spoil too much of it it opens with young Steven or in the movie Sammy Fableman being brought to his first movie the greatest show on earth his parents are explaining, his dad's explaining the sort of technical side about how a film is projected and what it means in our brain when we see 24 still images um, projected in succession per second and how it sort of exploits a flaw in our perception to appear like a moving image. And his mom is explaining more that it's it's like a dream, but it's a good dream. And you're watching these giants on a massive uh, platform. Uh, all great setup for the, the parents' dynamics. One is an engineer, one is an artist, things like that. But he goes into this movie as a young kid, and he is uh, traumatized by the experience. It's not this, look at how great movies are. It is, this kid is scarred by it. And it turns out that his only way to really 
address that trauma is to gain a degree of control over it by learning how to make his own movies and recreate what he saw and make it safe and make it known. It's a it's a wonderful movie. I think it's it's far more complex than you would assume it is, especially like, you know, we we talked about Spielberg recently with Saving Private Ryan. Um big fans of his obviously, but he's not without fault. Like some of his more recent movies, The Post I'd say is that version of a newspaper movie where journalists are heroes, freedom of the press, yada, yada, yada. Very boring movie. Not, not a great watch for me. The Fablemans is, is more than, than I think it, it seems on, on uh, at first glance. And I'd highly suggest it. it's a very fun, very nuanced movie. It has some very compelling ideas in it. Yeah. I um, definitely had those preconceptions and I think it was talking to you and a couple other people that, told me like no it's pretty legit um it's a very good film and mm-hmm. i have not seen it still yet but um i i really like steven spielberg it, uh, most of his movies i'm i find that there's just some magic to them uh he's yeah. he's just a magical director of some in some way um and the way that he's able to present time periods effectively throughout his films i i even mentioned the scene when we did um Saving Private Ryan, one of my, I think my shout out was the scene of the Ryan's mother receiving the news about her son's death. And that is mm-hmm. done very like, you know, 50, 1950s era mellow or like, sorry, that would be 1930s era melodrama. But uh, the way that he is able to convey those time periods visually would, is what really compels me to see something like the Fablemans because of mm-hmm. like the warm nostalgic tones, uh, the, the kind of cinema camera quality to them. Uh, I, I think he's I think it will be a good film. Yeah. Yeah. And there are just some, you know, if we're talking about single serving cinema and our, the way we look at things. Some of the scenes are, are some of the best of the year for me um, as a whole. It ranks Fableman's is probably in my top five. But um, I just sort of wanted to, to take this moment to do a little stumping for poor old Steven Spielberg, who may may not be getting his due on this. <laughs> Oh, I think he'll get. Uh, he's yeah. been pretty widely recognized. I think it won TIFF this year, no, I, right? I, I, yeah, I, I was joking. He'll do fine. Um, he was oddly left off of the BFI's list of best directors from the year, which is fifteen directors long. That is surprising. Which is kind of odd, but uh, I'm sure he'll do fine at the Oscars, um, and he'll be fine in general. I, I, I think it's a really cool movie, and you should check it out. Tay, let's get over to yours, which I think there's a little bit for me of a Venn diagram overlap in terms of like a director closer to the end of their career being a little Uh, bit more self-reflective. Yeah. Maybe self-reflective, maybe just diving back into their passions a bit more. Mm -hmm. Cronenberg has had, er, so I'm going to be talking about crimes of the future, the David Cronenberg film from 2022. Um, I'm a huge fan of David Cronenberg, but his past, I want to say three or four movies were a big step in the other direction from like what mm-hmm. he was, he became notorious for making, which was body horror and kind of like, I don't know. Bo- I, I, I like to think of them as body fascination films. Like he, he's obsessed mm-hmm. with the human body and what it and what the potentialities of the human body can be. Um, and that's mm-hmm. like always been an obsession of his. He tried to make this movie in 2003 and it would have had, um, I believe it was our boy Ralph Fiennes attached after Nicolas Cage was initially attached. So there's like some history to this role movie too. And when he couldn't get funding, he scrapped it. He was 
he was if it felt like a time where he was pretty done with dealing with this kind of uh these kinds of restraints placed upon him by the industry like Mm -hmm. where he couldn't make these kinds of horror movies that he wanted to make but crimes of the future comes out 22 years after uh, i want to say 22 years after his last movie of this kind which i would call existence i I would say existence would be the last film he made of this ilk and that was 1999 so Mm -hmm. many many years he comes back um just for fun i want to make the argument that it's because his son started getting some notoriety for these kinds of movies (laughs) and uh he's like i i still got this yeah step aside son so uh i can make a weird chair yeah exactly (laughs) um and crimes of the future delivered in many ways uh i thought that it continued to dive deeper into cronenberg's fascination with body and body transformation and disfigurement specifically but he takes it like a couple steps further um unlike movies like the fly or even existence for that matter this is not necessarily like a technical marvel in terms of practical effects i think it's it's obviously very strong in those regards because it's a cronenberg movie and he loves his practical effects but it's not as much about the visuals it's more about the themes of this movie um which play off a lot more contemporary concerns with body their body evolution and technology mm-hmm. than what he was previously talking about um i talked about marshall McLuhan and the ideas of technology and flesh combining and this theory was kind of called the future flesh uh theory and it it's very much it, it's very much uh exacted in this film and I guess, like, for those who haven't seen it, I'll just do a general synopsis. It's about a not-so-distant society in the future, or it's a version of humanity in the not-so-distant future where um, there are live performances of organ surgeries. There is a a shift in how humans deal with pain tolerance, and as as a result of that, disfigurement and public disfigurement becomes a form of entertainment and fascination surgery surgery as art yes and you see throughout the course of the film that this extends into also an expression of sexuality and and uh yeah sexual like sexual preferences yeah yeah um which reminded me a lot of things that you see in videodrome with uh specifically with pain and sexuality being intertwined um there's definitely something meta about what he's what he's doing here because he's talking about the exploitation of these of graphic disfigurement and that's basically what his movies have done in his career they are an exploitation of this of this these visuals and i think that he brought it all back together with a pretty clever film that deals with things that i have not seen other movies ever touch on which is you know humans are starting to come to terms with the fact that we have a lot of plastic in our blood now it's just Mm. a more common fact and i'm not going to spoil it but this comes to play a big part in his film uh and i thought it was done exceptionally well uh from like a horror and like domestic family melodrama standpoint i think like all these Mm. there's a lot of cool factors that play into that and a very strong thematic film i did have some issues with things like performance from a couple actors 
I've never really been a huge Kristen Stewart fan, although I will advocate that she's not a bad actor. I just don't like her in very many things. I like Kristen Stewart. This is not, this is a weird role. This Or this is a weird performance. Yeah. Whatever, whatever the work was between her and Cronenberg on this, I don't think it fits very well. And if that's intentional, I, I couldn't figure out why. Maybe, maybe the second viewing. I guess that's why I put the question mark on this because I really couldn't yeah. pinpoint what about her performance was so off-putting, but it was just very jarring. She seemed disjointed from the rest of the characters in the same scenes. Mm. Uh, I don't know, something about it. Um, and then I also wanted to shout out this uh, this other side character who's pl- who's uh, de- the name of the character is Detective Cope, and the ca- the actor's name is Welkit Bungay. Uh, who is who have never seen in another film before and I thought like there was a lot of promise with this really ambiguous character who's kind of kept in like the shadows and he just is literally a plot development device he's there for the characters to go to he tells them exactly what's happening in the plot and what they're about to go do then they go do it and they come back to him and the same thing happens a couple times in the film I felt that this was one of the worst written Cronenberg characters and performances uh I really can't blame the actor. I don't know any of their other work, but the performance was just rough all around in terms of like the delivery of exposition, which is just tough to do as an actor, I guess. Um, and I wanted to make this point too, because it also really threw me off the way that they lit this actor who is from Guinea Bissau. So he's just, he's an African man who, they, and they just didn't light him appropriately at all. I felt like it was mm-hmm. a huge miss on like the technical department, which Cronenberg usually nails. And something about this character and the way they lit him, he was kept way too much in the shadows. I had a hard time even seeing his performance on the big screen in the movie theater, which was, Mm -hmm. uh, it removed me a lot from the film at parts where I didn't want to be removed. And yeah, it was, it kind of threw me off. So I gave this movie a pretty strong review because I really liked the thematic elements that Cronenberg's presenting, but on a technical level, I thought it was a little underwhelming and I wish that he could have brightened up this movie a bit better. Yeah, I'm curious to whenever I do end up watching it again to see sort of how it plays on a TV because you never know with projection at theaters. But I agree that it was to a degree that you're like, this is this is not projection error. It might be partially, but um, this is this is intentional or or negligent. Um, but I agree. I, I I found it to be a very compelling movie. I really enjoyed going to see it. There's a lot to chew on. Yeah, um, I think about it a lot since, too. Yeah. And I do think like there's a there's a take on this movie, which I can't go into too much detail without giving stuff away. But I think you can read it as Cronenberg sort of self-reflecting on the process of consumption and creation of art. Right. Um, So in this movie, it's a lot about what you eat and how you eat and how difficult it is to eat certain things. And then also, you know, um, Viggo Mortensen's character's art literally being his body and things that are occurring in his body, um, sometimes without without precedent. I think there's a lot of a reading there where about what Cronenberg is putting out into the world, about how it's a creation of himself, of how it comes from deep inside him, and him maybe considering that like what he's consuming, and if you, you draw that metaphor through to art, the movies that he's into and what he thinks are is is worthless or like empty calories or, or disgusting to consume. Maybe he's reconsidering that. Maybe he's trying to stay relevant. He's looking forward to the future and saying, I, I can't, I, I have to change the way I operate. 
Um, I think there's an interesting angle there. There's a big movie essay to be, to be, you know, uh, uh, excavated from that idea. Um, but again, I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but I, there, there's some really interesting takes that, that popped up out of that movie. Yeah. I felt like the way that he was able to have a lot of self-reflection in this movie without it dominating the narrative or the plot points that I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. I thought that was really, um, very deep and, uh, Mm -hmm. very thoughtful of him. I think his, his way of looking at the world might not, he might not have had a place from like 2000 to 2020, but I think the way he looks at the human body and technological evolution are going to start translating even better over the course of the next decade. And I really hope he's still going to stick to these kinds of films and till the end of his career, I think this is where he thrives and this is where you can see his passion really come through as much as we have talked about and love his movies, like a history of violence or Eastern Mm -hmm. promises. I just, there's nothing that quite compares to Cronenberg in this genre. No one, no one is even close to him in this field other than maybe his son. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so that's a movie crimes of the future. It's about surgery as sex or surgery as art. And now I'm going to talk about the most disturbing movie I saw this year, which is Speak No Evil, um, a Danish movie by uh, Christian Tadtrup. Um, Now, I want to, again, kind of like with Faye Woman's, I want to establish some expectations here because this isn't a movie that I would wholeheartedly recommend it to everyone. But it's also not like an Irreversible or a 30 Days of Salem or a Serbian film. It's not this gore fest. It's not this thing that's pushing boundaries that we've generally established for what is okay to display this movie has such a capable and confident direction of really one idea of interrogating a an aspect of our social landscape and the way that we treat other people um that comes to a climax to one sequence that is the kind of thing that every now and then if i'm trying i'm trying to fall asleep and you know your mind's wandering my mind will go since I've seen this movie, it will heat seek in on that sequence and I will physically wince. It is it, it has had a an actual effect on me. Um, I'm sure to some degree I'm overselling this. There are people who are going to watch this movie and they'll be like, that was pretty tame. But I don't know. This one really worked for me. I thought it's it's atmosphere and its tone throughout the movie and sort of what it's trying to talk about i'm speaking very vaguely because again i don't want to give a ton away um but the movie in general is about a danish couple and a dutch couple that get together to spend some like the 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 latter invites the former to their house to come you know stay over have their families co-mingle uh make some food have some drinks have a nice time and sort of about what happens there um when you when you address the juxtaposition in terms of what one person thinks is socially acceptable and one person doesn't and how polite are you going to be in overlooking those differences and how far can you ramp that up before you're not going to be polite anymore things like that now the big warning on this movie and if you've heard anything about it you've probably heard this is that not a great watch for parents the thing that i'm referring to involves a child Uh, again like my my disclosure before when you think about something horrible happening with a child, it's probably not your first call. It's not a sexual abuse thing. It's more left field than that. Um, so those are all my warnings. 
this is like if you're looking like we talked about the way that I feel about horror movies before I love them when they can have an effect on me they can make me feel something they can sort of trap me into a sensation or an emotion and this is definitely the one that from this year I watched a lot of horror movies um, it's both I think socially relevant while not being political like so many others even Barbarian has politics to it um, while being a lot more fun and a lot lighter um, but there, there's relevant commentary on the way that we interact as people and a, a daring and I think highly successful sequence in terms of horrifying the viewer. Um, and I think, I think I'll leave it at that. Uh, you know, buyer beware. If you, if you dig horror, if you want to see something new and exciting, this is, this is what I'd recommend. But if you're not feeling up to it, uh, I'd say skip it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I know very little about this movie. I've, I heard that it was intense and that was about it. And then I heard your review just now and I'm pretty intrigued. I know expectations yeah. can be a, can really ruin something like this. So I'll, I'll try and go in pretty, pretty even keeled. Ex yeah. Expectations are so hard to set, right? Cause as I said, some people, they're going to hear what I just talked about for four minutes and they're going to expect the the grossest most vile thing they've ever seen and it, it may not deliver quite like that um but uh it, it's 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 really masterful filmmaking i think yeah in a, in a couple specific ways but i'll leave it at that that's that's uh that's that's one of my pick threes uh tay we're also going to jump over to you with a foreign film which is disturbing in a different way but i think uh, in, <laughs> in, in a much more comedic manner yeah i'm going to talk about triangle of sadness the latest film from uh, Swedish director Ruben Ostlund. Uh, I'm a huge fan. All three of his films been really mm -hmm. compelling and honestly quite riveting. Like they, they, no one's making movies like this anymore. It's almost it's almost Hitchcockian with a bit more like a bit like relishing in the absurdity a bit more and mm -hmm. creating more chaotic scenarios. But just the the way he controls his actors and creates tension. Uh, well, adding an element of comedy, there's something quite Hitchcockian about it. Um, but he takes like a much more, like sim very similar to his first two films, uh, Force Majeure and The Square. And I should say like first two like internationally acclaimed movies, I think. He had made yeah. more before those two. But this is once again one of those very to the point, on the nose indictments of class and social systems. Um, I think this is his most entertaining of the three films yet. Uh, I really liked the taut nature of Force Majeure and how that like really had the comedy like the comedy was one of the most like divisive things I've ever experienced in a movie theater when I saw that mm -hmm. um, people really didn't know how to <laughs> handle some of what he was presenting and I think yeah. th the third movie in now to the Osland saga I think like I'm getting it like I, like I, I was one of the only people laughing in the theater through Force Majeure, but seeing this movie, I, I really felt like people were on the same page. Like people were getting the humor, and I'm not sure if that's like a familiarity with Oslin now, or if that is, um, simply the fact that this movie is a bit more. I don't want to say dumbed I down. Think it's it's, it's it's broader. It's broader, which also feels like an insult, but it's not. No, but it I really think, isn't. I think it's 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 class commentary is more surface level than like, say it's um, gender role commentary. Yeah. In, um, in force majeure and, and, and the square. 
yeah, I think it's a bit more obvious. It's a bit more of the narrative. Like, the narrative is about class systems and social systems. Mm-hmm. So it being about these things, obviously it's a bit more on the nose. But he, I think, he, like, the point still remains, like, he is just as as sharp as ever with this script. He really controls his actors well. Um, I love the fact that he's able to attain talent from so many, like, international, like, uh, film sectors, right? Like, there there are so Mm -hmm. many actors who uh, you don't see in in American films very often, or at all, that he's able to bring into his movies. And there's really only one actor I knew coming into this movie. I'm sure that there's a bit of familiarity around the two stars of the film, Harris Dickinson and Charlby Dean, but I had never seen... Um, some of the breakout stars like Dolly Dolly de Leon, Dolly de Leon or Zlatko Buric yeah. in anything else before. Um, and then Woody Harrelson was the one actor I knew coming into this movie, and uh, I thought his role was great. He didn't. It wasn't like about creating a role for this superstar American actor, though. It was like he played a role like everybody else, and I just love how his ensembles work really well together. In mm-hmm. ac- across his work, but I think specifically in this one, that was a big standout. Um, I guess like in, in conclusion to all that, I, I just think that it's a strong film that has a very divisive ending, um, which I know some people are upset about and some people really don't care about too much, but I thought it was okay. Um, I thought overall the movie was very fun and the fact that he's able to do this same level of like critical indictment of these systems across three films now is pretty impressive that he's been so consistent and yeah. refreshingly honest in the way that he approaches his interpretations of these like very affluent cultures yeah no i i really dug this one i watched it just recently I, i'm wondering it may also it can't be another disney plus i can't have watched half the movies in this episode just on disney plus I did, I did watch it, really enjoyed it, definitely wished I, I think I was, I was sick when I was going to go see it at our local art film house, <laughs> and I think you made a joke about that. Yeah, uh, I did. That plays, that plays a part in the movie. Um, I really enjoyed it. I am one of the people where I don't actually, I less so agree with the conclusions he draws in terms of some of his gender commentary in this one than I did in Force Majeure and The Room. I have no argument with how he executed those conclusions. Super well done. And I don't have to agree. I'm not like, I don't think like, I yeah, don't think this is yeah. a, this movie is a problem. I'm totally okay with being like, all right, that's your take. I love how you did it. I do think this movie was, he either had more creative control or just didn't take quite an incisive edit to it. As I f- feel like I remember the room or the room the square and force majeure. Um, this one felt a little bit more bloated. He was definitely indulging in the sequences more. Well, those were tight movies. Fun. This one, this yeah. one's much longer. So that makes it's much sense. longer. I, I would, there's some stuff that I felt I would have cut out, whether that would have thrown off the balance. Cause it is a real balancing act. He's pulling in so many sequences. Um, I, I, it's tons of fun. Um, metaphobes, uh, beware, but otherwise, uh, everyone should check this out. Yeah, it's a it's a tremendous balancing act, like you said, between trying to create like a fun scenario while also being critical, but then without being too critical to the point where you're just disassociating your audience with the fact they're watching a movie. I think you're probably right somewhere in there about 
him having a bit too much freedom with the runtime on this. Um, but to, for the record, this was a 73-day shoot, uh, very long, very mm-hmm. ambitious. So um, compared to his other films, it was also much bigger and larger in scope. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but definitely one I would like to see in a theater with an with an audience that was laughing and at times squirming and, and groaning and things like that would have been a good one. But I, I think I made plenty of noises watching it at home alone by myself <laughs> on TV. Um, and then, yeah, so for our last two, these, these two are actually ones that were also uh, submitted by a listener yesterday, uh, Laciel or Laciel. Uh, I, I believe that's a portmanteau of their, of their names. Um, but the one that I'm bringing is Tar, which unlike the other two where I'm trying to talk about expectations and stuff like that, uh, I just absolutely love this movie. And I do think it maybe has the, the marketed appearance of like a super stuffy, artsy, important, just like, just, just long bombing for the Oscar. Again, I think it's a, it's a very, it's a fascinating movie. So Tar, uh, it stars Kate Blanchett. Uh, it's directed by Todd Fields, who hasn't made a movie in 12 or 16 years. And uh, you might recognize him as Nick Nightingale from Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, he used to be an actor. Now he's a director. Uh, and it's about a fictional, although the, one of the fun fallouts of the movie is that people started to think that this was a real person. Um, it's about a fictional conductor named Lydia Tarr, uh, who's a big deal in the classical music world. Um, she she conducts the uh, the uh, German orchestra, wields a lot of power. She says that she's one of the mentees of uh, Leonard Bernstein, one of the most famous conductors and 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 prolific composers in Western canon. Um, I will admit off the top that so I I have an education in music, I have an interest in classical music. A lot of people in our friend group do as well. Um, so those people have seen it too. I think it plays very well for us. Um, but I do think the movie is accessible. It's close to three hours long. It's a character study. It plays its cards close to the vest many times. Um, but Kate Blanchett gives a towering performance. It's really like best uh, actress is probably her or the lead of the movie that you're going to talk about this year. I'm. They kind of both deserve it. And your your the lead from your movie has the narrative that's super compelling. Blanchett just has like the oscar-worthy performance it's so full-fledged it's a wonderful thing to watch i think blanchette's um, been winning though at other yeah. at, in all the circuits so far i think blanchette's yeah, she, been winning for this movie i so. think she probably has it and that's just a real shame that both these movies came out in the same year because i'd love for both these people to get them um honestly i'd love for the the star of your movie to get it more than blanchette because blanchette she's been highly lauded she's a fixture you know um no, so the other thing I just want to mention about Tar is that I think the the super fascinating part about it is that it operates a bit like a Rorschach test, um, depending on who you are, what your background is, probably your age more than anything else. The way that Lydia Tar sort of over the course of this movie, as her career crumbles underneath her because of how she abused her power um, in something that can seem as insignificant as the classical music world. But whether you want to apply it to film directors or anyone in a, in a position of power and how they use that power and how they use it to get what they want um, and take advantage of people, um, especially from a female perspective in this one, um, though largely couched in a number of male ideas, especially about being a conductor and being one of the first breakthrough conductors. Um, it's really fascinating. There's, there's a sequence that is done all in one shot 
the way that we like it, not in a particularly showy way. Um, but it, it, um, it's a fascinating sequence where she's sort of criticizing a music student and their opinion about um, Johann Sebastian Bach and, and his position and, and whether or not his, the nature of his relationships and how he treated women is something that you should consider when you're considering the value of his music. The scene just walks back and forth between what you think of Lydia Tarr and how she's treating the student and whether she's saying things that you think are right and younger generations should keep in mind when they're just, you know, writing off entire generations of white men who founded nations or created the most legacy music ever written. Um, and other times you're like, this person's a monster and I can't stand this. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And that's, it's things like that that maybe preclude this movie from getting a best picture because it might make older generations, which still largely make up the Oscar voting base, might make them feel uncomfortable because um, it's a little bit self-critical of people in those positions of power. But it was a movie that really sat with me. I love to think about it, the people who have seen it. I love talking about it with them. And I can't wait to watch it again. And it's, it's you know, it's I want to say it's two hours and 50 minutes. There are longer movies I saw this year, but I, I really love this one. I really hope it's not another decade and a half till we get another one from Todd Fields. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I obviously haven't seen this one yet. I don't know. I've heard so much about Kate Blanchett in this movie that I just can see how it can be misconstrued as an Oscar Beatty kind of film. Mm -hmm. But from everything that you were telling me, even before you saw it, I kind of had a lot of a lot of hope that this movie would be as big and bold and powerful as you ended up saying it was and all signs are pointing to this being a very strong contender for a lot of awards this year not saying that that's like a degree of measurement that we go by but um as far as these kinds of biopics go fictional or not mm -hmm. they tend to be a bit overbearing and uh, follow a formula and this one doesn't sound like that so i'm i'm very intrigued to see it Absolutely. And then, uh, so we go from one best actress contender to another. What are you talking about, Tay? And what's the other one that Lacey Ols brought to us? <laughs> well, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about everything, everywhere, all at once this year. Uh, I think it's the strongest film of the year. Whether it's my favorite or not, I'm still deciding between a couple movies, but what, what a tremendous achievement in filmmaking. Um, by the directors Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, better known as the Daniels. And coming off of a huge indie success like Swiss Army Man, there was a lot of pressure to see what they were going to do next. Like, honestly, how can you be more original and innovative than Swiss Army Man? So my expectations were, I don't know what these guys have up their sleeve, but it, it, if it's a step back, like I could, I, I could understand why. It was far from that. It was a huge extension of what they did in Swiss Army Man so well, um, carried mm -hmm. into a much bigger, more successful, uh, more internationally acclaimed movie. Uh, I think universally loved film. I have yet to come across yep. someone who had issues with this movie, even the biggest pessimists or cynics or even people who like don't typically go too far beyond like the superhero movies of, of today. They... Mm -hmm. I had a lot of people reach out and say, like, I can't believe how good this movie was. And, yeah, I think we have to talk about it because of what this movie did. I, I actually only learned in the research for this that it was filmed right before the pandemic, right before March 2020. 
Yeah, um, they did their they did their pickups uh, remotely and stuff like that. There's a great. I'll see if I can find it. It might be their analysis of a scene with uh, Daniels of this, okay. but like there's a there's a sequence where Jamie Lee Curtis's hand is supposed to like go from one setting to another one and like onto like the RV window. And that's Daniel Scheinart's hand because like it was during the pandemic and they had to shoot this pickup and they just dressed up his hand with like her shirt cuff, right? Things like that. Uh, and I, once again, going back, I could talk for days about why the Daniels movies are so good and why they're such good directors, but they get their hands dirty and they're not afraid to step into other roles that aren't just being the director. Uh, it's not something that you typically see in union films, but Mm-hmm. These guys, these guys are all over it. They had a huge role to play in, like the the special effects that happened throughout this movie, which are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, they use a very small team, similar to Swiss Army Man, but I think obviously with the scale of this movie, it's scaled up a little bit. But relative to most films of this size and visual magnitude, this was a very small crew, and they just focused really hard on the creative decisions in advance. And I think during production, and that led to a very straightforward post-production i think for them or at least like relative to like how the complexity of what this movie offers mm-hmm. um once again it just continues to expand on what they did in swiss army man which is very visual uh, chaotic chaotic visual storytelling um there's like a lot of absurdity in <laughs> i guess the anatomy of the characters <laughs> is like yeah. the easiest way i can put it um uh and once again it's using a lot of it's very meta in the sense that it's using popular genres or popular ideas to deconstruct uh much more human ideas like self-exploration um they this movie talks a lot about the the fears of nihilism or the fears of just not caring and why and and why depression takes you yeah and talk about talking about something so contemporary and so uh hard to discuss I think is it's a real accomplishment when you can make something so cinematic and that translates to these like true hardcore emotions that a lot of people have to endure every day. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think conceptually very bold, very brilliant and uses this, um, this <laughs> overwrought over overly familiar convention of the multiverse that keeps popping up in movies annoyingly today Mm -hmm. um i think as like a narrative shorthand for a lot of things a multiverse works um but it tends to lead to very lazy decisions with storytelling this is like taking that and going the opposite direction how complex can we make a multiverse movie while still making allowing the audience to understand what what is happening so there are small moments of uh explanation where characters are explaining how the multiverse and everything works but for the most part our familiarity with these concepts allows this movie to flourish because it doesn't need to take a lot of time to do this instead it just uses this idea of the multiverse as a way to explore every character's like setbacks and strengths while yeah like it's retaining some originality yeah i love that like in this one multiverse the multiverse isn't a tool to expand the scope of the movie. It's a tool to further explore the multitudes within one person. Yeah. Right. It is, yeah. it is a, it is a, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, self-exploration device way more than like, I mean, at the, at its worst, you know, 
in in Marvel movies, it's it's now basically just a commercial device. Is like how can, how can we add more value? Let's add more people, add more characters, stuff like that. This one is how much more can we, can you know about yourself by finding out what you are in other, what your other versions of you are, right? Which is um, just a beautiful concept, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my understanding. So this movie, like they started writing it in 2015 or 2016, when you know they're American filmmakers. A lot of, lot of trouble in the States starting in 2016 with a certain presidential election. And I guess sort of like the core beginning was like, doesn't it feel like everything's going wrong? And like, why is everything going wrong? Everything's going wrong at the same time. And then they just sort of like, how can we, how can we explore that through a more fantastical setting than our reality? And they wanted to kind of make it feel like The Matrix. They wanted to do a kung fu movie. They wanted to do, they, they like the multiverse. They wanted to do everything, everywhere all at once. Um, and and they, they did, like, there's a great, I'll link it, but there's um, the Hollywood Reporter's director roundtable for the year has Daniel Kwan. And he mentions that, like, every time he gets to make a movie, he doesn't know if this is the last movie he'll ever get to make. He doesn't know. And I, I feel like you can see that, where, like, they're being this outlandish with their, with their, their ideas and their executions where he's yeah, like big swings. I don't know. It might be the last movie I've ever get to make. So he's like, I'm leaving it all on the table and you, you see it there. Like this is a long movie. It has three very dense acts to it. Kind of feels like it ends more than once. Um, and it's super powerful. It's very touching. Um, very heartfelt while also again, having, kung fu and incorporating you know butt plugs and people eating chapstick and hot dog like fingers like, hot dog finger how did i forget about the hot dog fingers you know google eyes on rocks that are characters entirely silent sequences it has everything and it like you love to see it like it's a great thing to witness and then yeah on top of that you throw that like i guess it costs around 25 mil to make and this movie had a non, a never-ending theatrical tale. It's made well over a hundred million dollars at this point. It is, I think, a valid contender for best picture. You never, the, after the last couple of years of the Oscars, you never know who they're going to throw it at. Especially like, if this is everybody's number two and everybody's number one is a different movie or one of four movies, that's kind of how stuff like, um, what was that movie from last year? It's an absolutely middle of the road Coda. That's like how Coda gets best picture, you know. This movie's much better than Coda. Um, but sorry, we've talked about this movie for a while. We haven't mentioned Michelle Yeoh. Um, yeah. I want to say... The, the anchor point. And, and Ki-Hu Kwan. Yeah. Both exceptional performances. And I loved seeing Ki-Hu Kwan back in movies and hearing his story. Uh, on. I watched the Actors Roundtable, actually, uh, mm-hmm. pretty recently. Uh, hearing his story is very touching, how he got back to this. It's uh, honestly it really reflected brendan fraser's comeback story in in some ways um just in in the sense of like just like never knowing they're gonna if they're gonna ever make a movie again and then coming back with really huge performances both of them this year but um it was Mm -hmm. amazing to see him back in front of the cameras and that he's he's getting a lot of attention and recognition for his his talent um yeah he got he got the golden globe which really bodes well for him he'll definitely get an oscar nom um and like I don't care for the Golden Globes at all. It's no, wild it's that they're still around. His is the speech that I went like after I heard he won. I went and I watched his speech. It was touching. Yeah, it was, you know, it's a tearjerker. He seems um, like such a genuinely sweet man. 
yeah like it sounds like he his his career in his career he struggled enough to fully appreciate everything that's happening yeah to him and i'm i'm not saying that like he should be grateful i think he he is fully aware of the ride that he's on and the work that like you said you watched that round table he talked about the work that he put into this like before his audition five different coaches coaches and then when he finally got it he he worked with them even further yeah i think it all it all paid off and it's such a it's such a touching narrative and And then you got michelle yo who's just like a a towering icon for decades in eastern cinema with with her breakover hits on this side too yeah um, sure uh, Super Cop and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Again, we, we mentioned this when we were talking about Tar, but like she's got this very compelling narrative too. That like more so one of those Oscars that you give in recognitions of a person's career and not entirely the the specific performance. But this is a full fledged performance as well. Like in both their cases, I think that it they're playing like a handful of characters each. Right, they're not playing the same person in every scene. Uh, mm-hmm. m- more so for uh, Kihi Kwan, but Michelle Yeoh like has to had to endure so many different shoots for this movie to happen. Uh, I mm-hmm. like just even in some of like the quick flash, like where it flashes between multiverses. Yeah. You see, you'll you'll go from her like on a beach to her having a baby in a hospital room to her being in like an office building, and those are each like half a second shots. And and they I'm, all require setup. That's, all all of know. them. They're not all green screened. I'm sure there's a degree of an effect, but like she has to go through makeup. She has to sit in a chair. They have to set up a camera. So commitment to a movie like this is is astronomical for the actors um, who are mm. who are forced to endure all that. Um, and I, you know, we also have to say like the set design and costume design go hand in hand with what I was just saying, which is finding locations that are suitable or creating locations that are suitable, and then coming up with hundreds of hundreds upon hundreds of costumes for the characters in this film so impressive so decadent so decadent too yes great kung fu great fighting you know highly inventive especially what you always what you expect of daniels but you know again they they keep sort of one-upping themselves they have a great stunt team there are great videos online with the stunt team and the, the two guys who you largely see doing the fighting as the security guards right um but uh, yeah, fantastic work. And we shouldn't, I don't want to gloss over, one of the parallel universes in this movie is just the Wong Kar Wai universe. And I love it to death. Like I, I recently, on your recommendation and with your DVD, <laughs> I watched uh, 2046. Yeah. And then immediately after, I was like, I got to watch everything everywhere all at once again. Because so you got like this low frame rate, slow-mo, and just like beautiful people smoking cigarettes and talking about how they can't be together. It just I, I loved it yeah very fallen angels influenced mm-hmm. um <laughs> that's yeah i forgot about that too um there's yeah. there's so much depth to this movie though and i really can't understate how how strong of a movie this is overall whether you can get behind all of the emotional sentiments or not that's kind of up to you as a viewer but as far as how you make a movie this is this is like a real cinematic experience on all fronts I I am so happy I saw it in a theater, but it works just as well at home. It's a it's yeah. a really great film. Yeah, there's really there's nothing else like it, which is so like just a a compliment like no other you can give to to a movie that also works and made money and is critically receptive and it has everything going for it. 
and the other thing I would say is that like this is maybe more so than any other movie, the movie that I feel like you can recommend to anyone. You can, yeah. Right? And if you I don't know who wouldn't enjoy this movie or wouldn't enjoy at least part of this movie. Yeah, if you can sit there through this whole movie and say you didn't enjoy it at all, I don't know how much of a soul you have. Yeah, man. But uh yeah, so I mean those those are our pick threes. I think we ended on the right one. Uh, if there's any, if you haven't seen all six of them and you're not sure about where to start, definitely, definitely uh, uh, look up uh, everything everywhere all at once, and uh, and give it a go. Uh, to let you know, in February, um, we're gonna start maybe focusing. We're gonna start trying in February to focus more on aligning our movie picks with uh, what's happening in the theaters. Because as we talked about in our resolutions episode, we want to go to the theater more, and we'd love it if you guys did too. So we're going to talk about M. Night Shyamalan next month. He's got a new movie coming out, uh, The Knock at the Cabin Door. Uh, it's got our boy Dave Bautista in it. Yep, that's uh, why it's so, got my I money. Mean, yeah, I'll buy a ticket for that. Uh, it looks interesting. It is an adaptation of a different work, which I think may really help M. Night Shyamalan because he's I'd say he's a mixed bag of a director. There's some things that I think he's very good at and some things that he's not quite so good at. And we'll get into those when we discuss his movies. As always, keep an eye on Instagram so you can vote for what other M. Night Shyamalan movie we're going to talk about. And to be clear, we're not planning to do an episode on The Knock at the Cabin Door. We're just aligning our schedule with that release. And we'll see if we got one for March as well. And we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, it's a fun way that I think we can we can keep pumping out like ep- two episodes a month while focusing on what we love, which is the theater experience yeah. and what's, what's hot right now. Mm-hmm. And then in the last episode, I went through a big list of movies that are or maybe could come out this year. Uh, and uh, we're just going to close with our most anticipated of the year. What do you got, Tay? So my, it's going to be the lame response, but mm-hmm. as much as I'm incredibly excited for the potential of a new David Fincher movie or a new um, a new Scor- a new Scorsese movie. Well, we know Glazer's movie is coming out, which is pretty amazing. Um, and we got Miyazaki, Alex Garland, uh, Baumbach, Gerwig, uh, Ari Aster, like so many directors. I, I'm Murderer's ex- Row, baby. Ex- I'm so excited to see all these new, di- all these directors' new works. But the one I'm actually looking, and then how can I forget Yorgos Lanthimos too? But um, the one I'm honestly most excited about after the trailer, which I don't usually watch trailers, but I will make exceptions for this director. I really am excited for Oppenheimer, uh, Christopher yeah. Nolan's film this year promises to be more what i want to see nolan do um i really like that he can do movies like tenet where he's like creating a fictional like technologically bent universe but at the same time i loved what he did with dunkirk so i want to see what he can do with a different kind of take on a historical event or character and Mm -hmm. oppenheimer is a fascinating and uh, like underrated is not the right word but underrepresented figure of of american history i'd say because Mm. someone who gets glossed over because of what he made being so much more powerful and impactful than the person himself so i want to see what this take on it is there's obviously going to be an interesting angle of time because it's nolan Mm -hmm. and i know the movie takes place over many years um but seeing killian murphy as a lead man is something i'm very much looking forward to haven't seen that in a very long time if at, if at all and uh just nolan being back and from all the accounts that i've heard so far using very advanced technology real, to to real, cre- real to, bombs to create real nuclear quotes. explosions uh that he can film 
Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm in. Count me yeah, in. I haven't looked into any of that production stuff yet. I see a lot of jokes about it, right? Um, but I, I don't really want to know about that. I want to see it first, then then get all the nitty gritty details. That said, I did just order the book um, that this movie is based on. Again, with air quotes, because I mean, with Nolan, I'm not too worried about knowing the story. It's it's the execution, it's the experience. So I've got a 900 page book called American Prometheus on its way to me. I'll get some <laughs> some background on it. And I think you're right, Tay. Like. It's kind of odd that Oppenheimer is not like a tired biopic subject like Nixon or or you know some like someone any of the presidents Churchill, right yeah right like I'm surprised we're not inundated with an Oppenheimer movie every every 5 years or so so the, I think I think this is a great choice and yeah I'm excited to go catch it in full on proper IMAX making a day of it you know it's going to be fantastic um I uh, there are many movies again that I'm excited for as well. My original thought was to go with this one movie that's part of a franchise I love, but it's a part one, and I don't know what that really means in terms of this movie franchise. So I'm going to go with uh, Hayao Miyazaki's uh, How Do You Live. Um, you know Miyazaki is uh, funny because you know the last four movies he's made, he's like, that's it, that's my last movie, and then you know I think he gets he gets bored or he doesn't like where animation is going and he comes back how do you live as i understand it is entirely hand-drawn it's just a ludicrous amount of frames that they've been working on they've been working on it for a while um and the only thing i know about the story isn't i don't even know anything about the story the thing i know about the impetus for the movie is that uh miyazaki wanted to make something for his grandchildren to so that when he's gone they know that they have something from him which I don't know. I guess I'll just go to the theater and 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 cry a lot. Like I I don't know what else this movie is going to be. It's going to be beautiful. And yeah. I can't wait. It, um, if if we can expect anything, it will just be incredibly sentimental and beautiful to look at. Um, the idea of, of that much hand drawn animation is is so um, exciting. I it's guess exciting. Yeah. yeah. Like I I just want to <laughs> see all that. Yeah. It's been a long no, time. No, so I can't. I I can't wait. I'm. I, you know, it it sounds like it's getting its Japan release this year. It could be plus six or eight months for, for a, a Western release, which it is what it is. But uh, I'm looking forward to catching it. Um, I am interested in, in seeing, like, how Miyazaki has aged in terms of what he thinks is important. Because there's obviously all these themes in his movies about, like, what he thinks about childhood and what is important in it. But also, like, at what point kids should start being responsible and understand the satisfaction and value of work. I don't know how that changes when he's making something like a love letter or or a memento for his family. A uh, lot, lot of interesting ways that could go. So I can't wait for that. So many movies I can't wait for. 2022 is a killer year and 2023 looking pretty good too. Yeah, very promising. Uh, I think the chances of it topping 2022 are pretty high based on what we know is coming out, which is very exciting. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, with that, that's our a la carte for 2022. Please, uh, feel free to connect with us on Instagram at SSC pod or email us at single serving cinema at gmail.com. If we get enough emails, we'll do a mailbag episode. It's an easy call. We also, we are working on scheduling that bonus episode that we're going to do for our listener that won the draw. We're going to talk about cinema paradiso, but otherwise, uh, keep an eye on Instagram. You'll find out what M night Shyamalan movies we're going to cover in February and we'll see you then. I see that.